0: few minutes we're going to be looking at the book of 2nd Peter chapter 3 and uh, we're just going to focus on two verses this morning verses 8 and 9 of of 2nd Peter chapter 3 Uh, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9 so if you want to find your way there and we have those notes uh, in the Bible app and it's on our website and that sort of thing as well if uh, you want to all along using those things. There was an atheist farmer that would ridicule those who believed in God. And one day he decided that he would write a letter to the local newspaper. In the letter he scoffed. I plowed on Sunday. I planted on Sunday. Cultivated on Sunday. And hauled in my crops on Sunday but I never went to church on Sunday, yet I harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing and never miss a service. The editor of the paper printed the man's letter and then he added this remark, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. For years, Christians have looked around at our culture and the evil that we are faced with in our culture and uh, day after day have wondered, why does God delay his judgment? Why doesn't Christ return and judge the world just like he promised to do? And then we realize, hopefully, that what if he had returned to judge the world while I was still an unbeliever? I would have been lost and so while it is true that we pray for god's kingdom to come we have to be content to leave the timing of his coming in god's hands remember here that peter is writing to the church that had all these false teachers they're scoffing at the promise of christ coming again to judge the world and their theological air stemmed from their greedy and lustful lifestyles. Yes, they claimed to believe in Christ, but they refused to submit to him as Lord. Their evil views, uh, views were snaring uh, uh, some of those who profess to be Christians. And so Peter is writing this letter to refute their errors by showing them that if Jesus Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead, then you must live a life of submission to his Lordship. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter showed that God's day of judgment is certain despite men's mockery of it. And then in verses 8 and 9, Peter will give us two truths to help explain why God seems to delay the return of Christ to judge the world. And so with that said, I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read 2 Peter chapter Three verses 8 and 9 I'll be reading from the English Standard Version <clears throat> but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some count slowness but is patient towards you Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, in our heart of hearts, may we have the heart of the Lord, not willing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. Speak to us this morning as we look at these two truths. For your saints are listening, I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to share these two truths with you today: that our Christ's return seems delayed because God's timing is not our timing, and secondly, it seems delayed because the Lord is patient, not wishing any should perish. So first. Why doesn't Christ return? Well, because God's timing is not our timing. Look again at verse 8, 2 Peter 3:8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Peter is again addressing the readers. He addresses them as beloved. Peter is a pastor shepherd. That's what he is. And he uh, wants them to know that he cares for them, that he loves these people. He does not want them to miss this one fact, which is very vital for their spiritual health. If you do not understand this truth, that God's perspective of time is very different from our perspective of time, you will struggle with enduring trials in your life. You will not understand why it is that the wicked in this world seem to prosper while the godly in this world seem to suffer. And you will not live in light of the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. Peter is taking this truth uh, really from Moses and and, uh, uh, Moses' psalm, which grapples with the shortness of life and God's eternality. Moses writes in Psalm uh, 90 verses 3 and 4, you return man To dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. He then compares our lives to the grass that sprouts up in the morning and it withers away by evening. The point is pretty easy to figure out. Life is short and feeble, but God is eternal. We're all greatly affected by time. Time doesn't affect God. When I married my wife, Tygain, she was 19 years old. I was 21 years old. If I brought in a wedding photo, you would perceive that there have been a few changes <laughs> since then. In fact, somebody was at her house, and they, they saw one of our pictures from our honeymoon. They said, I looked like I was a teenager, and I almost was. We've changed in our appearance since then. And if God grants us another 20 years, there will be even more changes. And the odds are those changes aren't going to be in our favor. But God never changes. God is the same now as he was at the beginning of time. Now stop and think about this. All of time is present with God. All of time. God sees the past, the present, and the future all equally. And we can't can't wrap our mind around that. We may remember a few things from the past. Some of us, uh, not as much as others, right? We forget a lot of stuff. We are limited because we have this finite perspective in perceiving the present. But God sees everything happening everywhere all at once. We have no knowledge of the future other than our clouded view of biblical prophecy. However, God sees the future in every single detail of the future. He sees what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. And it's just there, clear as day. So not only is time different for God, but God's view of the length of time is different than our view as well. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years What does that even mean? How can we wrap our minds around this? Charles Spurgeon said this, that that God can make a single day as useful in his purpose as it would take us a thousand years to produce. The world has seen some great awakenings where thousands are converted in a short amount of time where under normal conditions, it would take many years. Or when God converted the apostle Paul that when he was on the road to Damascus, it was just like any other day. But that one day has resulted in more than a thousand years of influence through Paul's ministry and his inspired writings in God's word. But also look at what else it says. A thousand years is as one day. So since the since late second century, I was, I was doing some study here and I, I just found this interesting. That since the late second century, many have speculated uh, that God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh and that it follows that creation would last for 6,000 years, followed by the millennium. So if you add up all the genealogies in Genesis with no gaps, creation was roughly 4,000 B.C. Therefore, the six days should be up at any moment now. We're in 2021. And while that's interesting speculation, that's all it is, it's speculation. Peter does not say that 1,000 years is equal. To one day, right? But rather it is as one day. So he's making this analogy, not giving us a literal equation like this is how you figure out. We can't even conceive what the world was like a thousand years ago. But stop and think about this. To God, that was like yesterday. We we can't we can't fathom it, but to God that was that was yesterday. Even though we have this significant gap between our view of time and God's view of time, we might compare it kind of like a a child's view of time versus an adult's view of time, right? Uh, Y'all know if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if you've ever had kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Try to tell a small child that their birthday is only a month away. Like, oh, your birthday is next month. They don't get it. They'll ask you every single day, is it my birthday yet? Is it my birthday yet? Is today my birthday? Is today my birthday? Or how about when you all pile in the car for a long trip that's going to take you 12 hours to get there? 30 minutes later, are we almost there yet? They don't don't understand it. In the same way, we can't conceive of a thousand years. But to God, one day. And this truth is incredibly practical for us. It helps us endure our suffering. And we see this all through the scripture, that understanding God's timing, it, it, it helps us endure, that God does things in his time, not ours. But we really see this in the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 41, verse 1. We read, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, Right? And he would say, well, why is that a big deal? That seems insignificant. Well, it's not. Because up until this point, we have this life of Joseph. And Joseph's in prison at this point, And he had correctly interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. And, and he said to the cupbearer, remember me when you leave. That's what Joseph pleaded with the cupbearer as the cupbearer was leaving prison. Remember me before Pharaoh, cupbearer. What did the cupbearer do? Apparently, he forgot. Joseph's most likely in his 20s. He's in an Egyptian dungeon. This is not the place you want to be in your 20s. You're young, you're healthy, you're wanting to get a wife and and have children and have a career, especially since Joseph was thrown into prison for doing what was right. Can you imagine Joseph every single night praying, Lord, if it's your will, get me out of this place. I'm here because I obeyed you and I resisted Potiphar's wife and all of her advances towards me. I did the right thing, God. How long do I have to suffer? And now, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Let me ask you something. Why couldn't God have given Pharaoh a dream after two days? Or why couldn't he give him a dream after two weeks? Or a dream after two months? Why did it have to be two years? We don't know. We don't know God's reason. But Joseph trusted in God's sovereign control of everything that had happened to him. He trusted so much so, God's sovereign control, that he later affirms it to his brothers. Because he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. God also had a sovereign purpose when he kept Jacob's descendants as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years and an awfully long time to be a slave making bricks in the hot Egyptian sun. Can you imagine? But from God's perspective, that was less than half a day. It was 400 years from the time that the last of the prophets spoke to the birth of the Messiah. But Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God was right on schedule. God was right on time. God is never late. He is never early. He's always always right on time. <coughs> That's why when people say, "Oh, well, he died early." No he didn't. He died right on time. God's not late. God's not early. God does as He pleases. He's the sovereign God of this universe. Peter is taking this truth and He's applying it to us so that when we wait for Christ's return, then then He will judge the wicked and reign in righteousness. It seems as if He will never return, but it's only been two days. You get that? It seems like when's He ever going to come back? And God's timing's been two days. It seems like it's been delayed. But that's only because God's timing is not our timing. It's radically different than our timing. The second reason Christ does not return is this. Because the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish. The Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish. Look with me at verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. What a wonderful verse. It's very practical. The application is, is practic- practical, but we'll, we'll miss it if we're not careful. We can miss it because, because um, this verse has caused some deep theological controversies. First notice this, that that God's promises happen in his time, not our schedule. God's promises happen in his time, not our schedule. When Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, it seems as as if he's alluding to these charges of the false teachers. They said that because, because Jesus had not yet returned, his promise to return couldn't be valid at all. And here's the irony of that. They're using the Lord's patience, which is, which is giving them time to repent. They're using uh, 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 the patience against him. They wrongly presumed that because, because God wasn't acting according to their timetable, then they could sit in judgment of God. But the fact is, though we will often have times when we do not understand the Lord's ways or his timing, we never have the right to pronounce judgment on God and say that his ways or his timing is wrong we can't do that back in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20 Peter refers to God's patience during the days of Noah's building the ark for at least 100 years God patiently waited while Noah built the ark and preached righteousness to those evil people did anyone respond to Noah's preaching of righteousness for 100 years no Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a pastor for a hundred years, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and no one responds? By the world's standards, you are an utter failure. The only people that responded are Noah's family. God still waits patiently, just like he did then. We're surrounded by evil, church. God is patient. Before he pours out his wrath and judgment, he's patient. But there is a time coming when God's judgment will fall. God is not slow in his promise, which refers to the promise of Christ's coming, which will be in judgment. And when that judgment comes, everyone who has not responded to Christ's call to repentance will be excluded from the kingdom of God. They ignored the warnings, and it will be too late. Not only do God's promises happen in his time and not our schedule, but secondly, God's delay is due to his patience and compassion. God's delay is due to his patience and compassion. Look at this wonderful truth that also plunges us into theological difficulties. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The saying is that there's more than one way to fall off a horse. There's at least two ways to fall off this one. Some emphasize God's heart for the lost to the point that they picture that God is up in heaven languishing away in heaven, wringing his hands over these stubborn sinners who just refuse to exercise their free will and come to Christ. And he's up there, oh, I just wish that these, I wish that these uh, these dirty rotten sinners would just, just use their free will and come to me. He's done everything he can do to save them. Now it's just up to them. All God can do is sit in heaven and be heartsick over their sinful refusal to repent and believe in him. And there's others that argue that God could not wish for all people not to perish because he's not chosen all for salvation. So they say that, that uh, only, uh, the only ones that God does not wish to perish are his elect. The implication is that God does not really care about the non elect Then I believe both of these views are out of balance with what Peter is saying. And I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to try to. Their first view is out of balance because, to be honest, it turns out that God, um, it turns God into some sort of wimpy God. God can't do anything because man's so-called free will restricts God from doing what God wants to do. You see the problem with that? It makes you more powerful than God. Now your free will is more powerful than the almighty God of this universe. And some people argue, well, God is sovereign over everything except for my free will. Do you realize how stupid that sounds? That makes absolutely no sense. We're not more powerful than God. The Bible is clear that fallen man's will is not free at all. But to use the words of Charles Wesley, In that great hymn that many of us like to sing, and can it be, our will is fast bound in sin and nature's night. In other words, our will is a slave of sin. That's all we can do. We are slaves of our own sin without Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 10, and 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. He doesn't say some are righteous, there's a few that are righteous, someone seeks after God. There are some people that understand, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, Paul describes the human race outside of Christ as dead in their sins. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we're blinded by Satan. And again, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, darkened in our understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. So let me ask you this. If it is up to you, if it is up to man's will to choose salvation, how could anyone be saved? The answer is you couldn't be. Because dead men can't respond. Blind men cannot see. It doesn't happen. You're in bondage to sin. And that's what you will freely choose every single time. So when someone comes up to me and says, I got free will. You're right. You will freely choose sin every single time. The first view errs by picturing God is unable to save anyone. God can't save you. Because he's waiting for your free will to come around. The second view errs by picturing God as uncaring and unloving towards the lost, Except the elect loss, of course, who have not yet come to salvation. It correctly affirms God's decretive will, which assures us that the Father has given a certain number to the Son... And of that number he will not lose any of them, but will raise them up on the last day. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40 tells us that. Both Jesus and Paul referred to the elect or the chosen. Matthew 24, 22, Matthew 25, 31, Luke 18, 7, Romans 8, 33. 2 Timothy 2.10. So when people try to say election's not in the Bible, they need to read their Bible. But anyway, that's a whole different story. This is not a reference to man's choice of God. None of these are. But instead of God's sovereign choice of man, God chooses sinners in spite of themselves so that no one can boast and say, look at me, I chose God. So they somehow somehow think that they earned anything. They didn't earn anything. First Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 gives us a whole explanation of that. The second view completely misses what is known as God's will of desire, which expresses his compassion for, For all the lost. We see God's desire that the lost would come to Him and be saved in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord and the God, and not rather that He should turn from His way and live? We see God's patience and compassion for the lost in the New Testament when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in light of their rejection of Him and their inevitable judgment that will come in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. We see it when Paul is sorrowful in his unceasing grief for the hardened Jews in Romans chapter 9. Paul also said that God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth of God in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. John Calvin comments on it in his commentaries on 2 Peter 3, 9, this. So wonderful is his love towards mankind that he would have them all be saved and is so of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. So how do we explain this? How do we explain God's desire or wish that all would come to repentance and be saved and the straightforward truth that he only chooses some to be saved, not all? Well, Calvin explains that in the Gospels, God with compassion stretches out his hand to all because of his hidden purpose. He only lay hold of those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. When I was reading for this this. this Message. I read a helpful discussion from John Piper on desiringgod.org called Are There Two Wills in God? It's a great article. If you get a chance, go, go look it up and read it. The short answer is that the Bible clearly teaches that God decrees some things that are not God's desire. God decrees some things that are not God's desire. And some would say, Well, how is that possible? I don't know, but we do have an example of it in Scripture to help us understand it. The clearest example of God decreeing something that He does not desire is the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, which required the evil deeds of evil men to accomplish. God doesn't desire evil. God does not directly cause evil. He is not the direct cause of evil. But God, by His decree, permits that evil will happen for a higher purpose or a higher good. So when evil people do evil deeds, which are decreed by God, the evil people are fully responsible and they cannot blame God. This is seen in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter proclaims, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God God decreed the death of his own son you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God's decree of his son didn't desire it but he decreed it and still held evil men responsible Acts 4 28 disciples pray. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus Christ, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose destined to occur. Decreed it. God decreed it. There are many other examples all through Scripture, but we have to hold this, this tension, right? God decrees his elect salvation, but He desires the salvation of everyone. And when Peter writes that the Lord is patient towards you, he may mean towards any from all the churches who had followed the false teachers. but God's desire is for each of them to repent. But he didn't decree it. That all of them actually would repent. This is in line with what the scriptures teach us. God is patient towards all sinners. He does not wish that any should perish, but for all to come repentance. This leads me to my final point of application this morning. Since God wishes all to come to repentance, we must preach the gospel of repentance to everyone. Once again, we face tension, right? On one hand, we know that God has not chosen everyone to salvation. We know that. If we read our scripture, we know this is true. But on the other hand, he desires that all would be saved. We don't know in advance who his chosen ones are. Nobody's walking around with a with a sign on their head, I'm chosen of God. We don't know. So we proclaim the good news that God wants to save you from judgment. God does not want to condemn you. In fact, he went to such great sacrifice to provide salvation. (coughs) Namely, he sent his own son to die on the cross and pay the penalty for all who repent and believe. And so we can (coughs) plead with people to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And we can assure them of God's genuine concern and compassion for them. Here is the thing, though, church. We must warn people that God's patience does not last forever. People may die at any point and face His judgment. Christ may return, and when He does, it will be too late to repent. As Peter goes on to say in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now is a day of salvation. Don't presume on God's patience. Also, if we're going to preach the gospel truthfully, then we must preach, preach repentance. Pre- repentance is an essential part of saving faith. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus summarizes his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The risen Lord Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should... Sh- should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance means that we turn from our sin. If you're leaving Washington, Illinois, and you decide that you're going to make a trip to Chicago for whatever reason, maybe because they have good pizza—I don't know—but you're going to you're going to drive to Chicago. It means that you turn around and you drive back to Washington. You can't do both at the same time. You you would have problems. Your, Your car would split in two or whatever. You can't truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior without turning from your sins. But please understand this. The Lord turns you from your sins by giving you all new desires. We do not truly present the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ if we fail to call sinners to repentance and faith. If we refuse to tell a sinner that they're a sinner, then why in the world would they ever need a Savior? What do they need to be saved from? That's the whole point. Because we are sinners, then we need to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And the only way to be saved is by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ as your Savior, realizing that He is more valuable than your sin. Let me make it clear, Christian. It is our duty to preach the gospel of repentance to everyone. Everyone means everyone. Everyone means your neighbor, your coworkers, your family members, your strangers, your city, your state, your nation, and other nations. Everyone means everyone. It means your friends and your enemies. Perhaps the problems that we are faced with in America are problems that Christians have brought on themselves because we have failed to do our duty in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone. Instead, we say, well, it's not my job i are not going to do that. That's why we paid the preacher the big bucks. He can go out there and do all that witnessing. Let me close with this. Someone once made a sign that said, one maker ultimately recalls all his products. One maker ultimately recalls all his products. One day. Each and every one of us will stand before God and we will give an account. Do not be lulled into thinking that it will not happen. It only seems delayed because God's perspective of time is radically different than our perspective. And because he is patient, he waits for all to come to repentance. But as Peter goes on to say, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Don't be caught off guard. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ while you still can. How do you do this? You can do it by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not magic. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. It's your call to to say, Lord, I... I trust you. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I put my trust in you. If you said that prayer or something like it, or, or you want to know more, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of the service. You can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. That's the word faith to 309-328-3488. Or you can just send a text message, that number. Saying, I, I want to know more about what you're talking about. You can do that in your pew if you want to. You can do that from your home. You can Wherever. Lastly, those of us that are Christians, i want to challenge you today. You have the answer to the world's problem. You do. You see, it's, it's so easy to look around at the world and think that the problem is something else. That's the law that Satan wants you to believe. Look around at all the chaos in the world and think, oh, that's because of this and that's because of this. The problem in our world is not political. The problem is not who is the president. The problem is not world hunger. The problem, plain and simple, of our world is sin. You have the solution, which is Jesus Christ, the Savior from the wrath of God for our sins. Are you preaching the gospel of repentance to everyone? Not just the people that you like. Not just the people that you're from. Are you preaching the gospel of repentance to everyone? If we refuse to proclaim the gospel, we have no right to look around at our culture and the world that we are living in. We have no right to look around and go, what in the world is happening? What is happening is that people are giving in to their own sinful inclinations. And the church of Jesus Christ sits by and does very little to proclaim the good news of the gospel of repentance to everyone that we are supposed to proclaim it to. So I ask you, are you preaching the gospel of repentance? Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that it penetrates hearts. Whether it does it in this church this morning, in this building, whether it penetrates hearts that are watching online right now, whether it penetrates hearts later when somebody Views it on our website or on YouTube or wherever it might be. God, they pray your word would do as we know it does. That, Lord, perhaps there are those that will hear this message. They're not saved, they don't know Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that you would save them. Lord, for the Christian, forgive us. God, forgive us for being stingy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgive us, God, for thinking that the problem is something else or someone else. Forgive us for thinking that that it's someone else's issue. Forgive us for looking at our neighbor and those that have opposing viewpoints and thinking of them as vile or heathens. Instead of this could be one of God's children. My call, my call is to proclaim the gospel of repentance to everyone. We have the solution to the world's problem. Oh Lord, that we would take it forth to the world and proclaim it and see lost, come to know Christ as our Savior. If you've spoken to us, I pray that we respond this morning and pray this in Jesus' name. As we sing, you be one God.